0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March 13th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is early Wednesday morning, and I am here with Truthids to present part 30 of our series on 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. So we once again continue our discussion of particular passages in Paul's epistles where certain terms are either mistranslated or misunderstood, adversely affecting the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the New Testament. As we have already explained here many times, due to the nature and purpose of Paul's writings, there are more of these than there are in all of the other New Testament scriptures. Essentially, the churches claim that Paul changed Christianity from a focus on Jews to a universal focus. And that is a perversion of the entire message of the gospel of Christ and also of the often stated purposes and intentions of Paul himself, who meant only to bring the gospel of Christ to the lost sheep of Israel, which is what Christ had commissioned him to do. So we continue our trek through Paul's epistles. Truth Fids, welcome. Thank you for being here once again.
1: Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks, for me. So, yeah, we had a little uh, one-week break, but uh, we're back now. And uh, back to Paul's epistles again, and what we keep seeing as that every epistle, um, you know, w- was equally equally important and it explained, I guess, Christian identity from a slightly different perspective. You know, he's speaking to uh, people who had slightly different history, uh, different assemblies, but he's essentially consistent all the way through and just explaining it in different ways. And uh, when when you correct all these mistakes, you can clearly see that, as we've said many times, he's identifying all these places as Israelites and warning of an evil, crooked race. And and that's always taken out. Right. And and as we're also going to see, there's many false doctrines that are also immediately eliminated, like this so-called future antichrist and, you know, and other doctrines that don't hold up with the rest of Scripture. So hopefully that will all be clarified here, right? And um, again, we'll see the Philippians, Philippians sorry, will be identified as the Israelites, right, Bill?
0: Well, absolutely. It's all right there in Paul's epistles, but some of them are so badly translated. and And I believe that the bad translations were done, many of them were blatant and purposeful. That they this idea of a future antichrist that we're going to discuss later on today, a lot of it comes from Second um, Thessalonians chapter two, and certain verbs are purposely mistranslated in order to make it look like Paul was speaking of a future antichrist when in fact he was speaking of a satanic entity which was alive and well in Jerusalem at his own time. As John said in his epistle, many antichrists had already been born, yet mainstream Christians look for this future antichrist, and, and perhaps we'll include that passage from John's epistles in this series.
1: And um, Bill, do you think also because, because they began pretending to be the Israelites, that's when it really began, uh, you know, being called Antichrist because they were constantly against Christ's message. From then on, and, and that's when they were identified.
0: Well, absolutely. The word Antichrist, even though Paul uses the word Satan to refer to the Jews in Jerusalem, those who rejected Christ. And and they were primarily of course the Edomite Jews. Even though Paul used that term Satan, the word Antichrist is only it only appears in the in in the epistles of John. And it's in um first John chapter two, chapter four, it's in Second John chapter one, it's four times in the singular and once in the plural in the epistles of John. So it appears five times in John. The second chapter of the first epistle of John, little children, it is the last time. And as you know, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists whereby we know it is the last time. And, and then he goes on a few verses later to explain who is a liar, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ he is antichrist. Well, first, we have to understand john's or or comprehend john's understanding of what the Christ is that is the Messiah, which means anointed one, the Messiah of Daniel chapter nine, and that the, the way that the messiah is described throughout the prophecies of isaiah for instance and and notably <clears throat> because the messiah was also understood to be the savior and the redeemer which was promised in in many chapters of the prophecies of isaiah so those who denied that Yeshua was the christ according to Daniel chapter nine, who would make um, reconciliation and and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation and put an end to the necessity of the sacrifices of of the old temple and things like that. That's what Daniel chapter nine describes of the Messiah, the anointed one in Hebrew. and, And that's the meaning of Christ, the anointed one in, in Greek. So that's what John meant when he said, he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, is he who denies that Christ came and did those things, described in Daniel chapter 9, and he that denies that Christ is the Redeemer and Savior in the chapters of Isaiah, which prophecy the Redeemer and Savior. So that's what John's talking about, and when John wrote that in that context, he's talking about Jews. He's not talking about anybody else but Jews at the time when John wrote this. And that's because the Romans and and the Greeks would not have had an education and a context in which to understand this. They would have to be instructed in the Old Testament first. Because even though a great many of them were the, among the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they were far removed from this understanding. That their ancestors had long departed from the main bodies of Israel that did keep this understanding. So they wouldn't have had a context to understand it. They would have to be re-educated, which they were in Christianity. Ultimately, they were. So John could only have been talking about Jews when he wrote those words. And they are the Antichrist. Because they never accepted Joshua Christ as Redeemer, Redeemer and, and Savior of Israel. On that note, we have already addressed many elements of Paul's epistles to the Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, and now we will turn to his epistle to the Philippians. We will also discuss. We, we will discuss several of Paul's epistles this evening. Once we are able to demonstrate the numerous King James Version errors in translating the many words and verses which we have selected for these presentations, and we properly translate those words and verses, a very different picture of the purpose and substance of the ministry of Paul comes to light. And his words are seen to correspond to all of the words of the ancient prophets relating to the children of Israel. Philippi, Philippi, this epistle to the Philippians, right? F- Philippi was a city in what was once Thrace, and, and this it is a small example of how the seed of Abraham came to inherit the Adamic world, right? Philippi was conquered by Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, and it was renamed after himself, in the 4th century before Christ, whereupon it was colonized by Macedonians. The city was later conquered twice by the Romans during the Roman-Macedonian wars of the 2nd century BC, and again by the Triumvirate, as the city had sided with Brutus and Cassius in their attempt to preserve the Republic. And a a lot of people see Julius Caesar as a hero. He was actually a traitor to the Roman Republic. This last conquest resulted in Roman colonization of the city, where its land was divided among the colonists, at least many of whom were former Roman soldiers. That's how Rome actually rewarded her soldiers by dividing them a share of conquered land and awarding that to them as they retired so that they would have an estate to retire to. While we can imagine that there must have been a surviving Macedonian population, from that time, the city had a strong Roman presence. Most of those soldiers at that time were almost certainly Romans and other Italians, Italians who mostly descended from the Greeks.
1: And um, didn't one of the historians say that the Freccians at one point were one of the most numerous people in the world? And, And as you just said, this shows that they all just disappeared gradually.
0: Well, that's correct, but I really believe that a lot of those Thracian, Thracians he was talking about, I, I believe you're speaking about Thucydides. I could be wrong, but I believe that a lot of them were actually Scythians and not really Thracians also. So that there's um, prehistory in Thrace, which is sort of difficult to sort out because the history of Thrace in ancient times is not very well recorded in philippians chapter 1 paul is seen as addressing saints or sanctified ones we've already discussed this word he mentions the fellowship of the gospel the confirmation of the gospel and encourages them to conduct themselves in a manner which is worthy of the gospel. That confirmation of the gospel, what in the gospel is there to confirm? It, it's the, 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 the need for confirmation is found in the prophets, right? The confirmation of the gospel is when the children of Israel return to God through the gospel. That's what the confirmation of the gospel is. That's a whole other topic, right? Well, Throughout the chapter, Paul also encourages them to good fruits, to seek out what is excellent, to stand fast in the faith of the gospel, in spite of their enemies, who are also the enemies of Christ. As we see in the gospel, those who would love Christ are also expected to keep his commandments. And here Paul is exhorting the Philippians to do that very thing, in this chapter, in words which are not so explicit, but which convey the fact that Christians should willfully choose to keep the commandments on account of their salvation, and not so that they may be saved. Mainstream Christians have that backwards, right? So that's just the backdrop for the statements which Paul makes in Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 and 16. When Paul wrote these things in Philippians, he was expecting the outcome of his own trial and imminent execution. So in Philippians chapter 2, he encourages them to keep the commandments where he wrote, as it appears in the King James Version, and we'll read that first, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that means keep the commandments, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that's the Word made flesh, that is, Christ coming to express the need to keep the commandments. The things, do these things that you may have life by them, as it says in in the books of Moses. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yeah, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice... This is his imminent execution. The possibility of that is being expressed here. If I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. That's how Paul looked at death as he sat um, under chains, under bonds in Rome, awaiting the outcome of his trial. So in that last verse, Paul is expressing the concept that his own death is worthy so long as the Philippians chose to obey Christ on his account as a result of his having brought them the gospel. But as the King James translators rendered this passage, it sounds as if men can choose to do good so that they may be sons of God and that alone would set them apart from the rest of the world. But Paul's message is actually much stronger than that. And it's quite different. So I'm going to repeat the text of verse 15, because that's where our contention lies with this passage. As it is in the King James Version, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In this verse, the word blameless is from the Greek word amemptus, which is in turn from the negative prefix a or a, right? That's how they negated something. That's like the English un UN for like unnecessary, something that's not necessary, right? So the Greeks used an A prefix instead. And the verb memphomahi, and, and this is an adjective form of the verb, right? Memphis comes from memphomahi, which is to be blamed or blameworthy. So Liddell and Scott define a as not to be blamed, or blameless, and then of things perfect in its kind. And I would say that that can also apply to people as well as things. In this King James Version of this verse, the word harmless is from akarahius, which is another negated A word, right? A-kirahius primarily means unmixed or pure in blood, according to Liddell and Scott. It is derived from that negative prefix, a, and the verb, keranumi, which is to mix or to mingle. The phrase without rebuke here is from the Greek word amomus, which is a compound word, again, from the negative prefix a, and momus, an adjective, which means blame, ridicule, or disgrace. So we see that amentus, which is blameless, and amomus, which is, can also be without blame, are really um, close synonyms. Not too close, but that they're fairly close synonyms. So according to the definition of amemptus, something which is perfect in its kind is something without blame. This concept in the Bible we first see in Genesis chapter 6, where the descendants of Adam were race-mixing with the so-called sons of God, which in apocryphal books and in certain manuscripts of the Septuagint are instead identified as sons of heaven or angels, referring to fallen angels. There it says of Noah that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with god another indication that this is this race mixing episode between these so-called sons of god and daughters of men is really between fallen angels and daughters of men is the use of the term nephilim to describe them which means fallen ones and i believe we probably addressed that earlier in this series if i'm not mistaken
1: Yes, yeah, often translated as giants, which can be deceiving. Yes, <clears throat>
0: yes, it absolutely is deceiving. So these three words, Amentis, Akarahius, and Amomus, are set in apposition to the phrase, Gnaeus Scullius Cahi Diastramenes, and Gnaeus is race. And scolius is a word meaning crooked, and diastromines is a word that kind of means through turning over, right? And, and it's it's usually translated as perverted or something similar. So, Ganea scolius cahi diastromines means a crooked and perverse race, but in the King James Version, it says a crooked and perverse nation. Okay, Ganeas comes first, so it could be a race, crooked and perverse. The word Genea is a race, stock, or family, but it's nation in the King James Version in verse 15. These three words are set in apposition to the phrase, a race crooked and perverse. So they must be interpreted within that same context. And I'm going to explain why. It is both morally and intellectually dishonest to gloss over or ignore The message of racial purity meant by Paul in his use of these words, amemptus and akarahius, which are also joined here with the entreaty to do all things and must refer to the word of life mentioned in verse 16. If amemptus, which is without blame, is used in contrast to sin, Then we may imagine it to mean blameless in that context. But here it is not in opposition to sin. It is in opposition to words describing a crooked and perverted race. And therefore it must have been used by Paul to describe something perfect in its kind as Liddell and Scott also defined the word. In that manner, it is more readily distinguished from amomus, which may also mean blameless. But for that, the King James Version has without rebuke. If Akiraeus were set in opposition to some wicked thought, then perhaps we may imagine that it can be interpreted to refer to some unpolluted or pure thought. But being in opposition to the phrase describing a crooked and perverted race, it must be translated in its literal sense, where Liddell and Scott define it to mean unmixed or pure in blood. Speaking of people. That's how people are unmixed. They're pure in blood. Therefore, we must translate this passage of Philippians chapter 2 to read as it is in the christogenian New Testament, do all things apart from murmuring and disputing that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, perfect in your kind and with unmixed blood, pure in blood. Blameless children of Yahweh, in the midst of a race crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in the cosmos, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. Paul saying that if they don't maintain themselves crooked, if they don't maintain themselves from being crooked and perverted, if they don't maintain their blood and their kind, that he himself had run in vain and had labored in vain. So, of course, luminaries in the night sky are white and stand out in the darkness.
1: Yeah, So um, the, the King James kind of makes it sound like the, the city or the culture around him was uh, around the Philippines was crooked and perverse and that they need to come out of that and be good Christians to become sons of God when that's completely not what he's saying. He's saying don't mix with these crooked and perverted race. Right. And he would mostly be referring to Jews. Right. At that time period, there, there wasn't that many other races within that area at that time right well well right
0: there weren't but there were also um prophecies that a third of Christendom would become overrun with locusts and and things like that and and denominational christians imagine that those locusts are real bugs or perhaps they that they represent military machines or something like that. They refuse to see them as the people who overran Christianity and and did turn the race into something crooked and perverted. So we're promised that if we keep the law and, and we do all the things which Christ expects of us, that we will be preserved. And that if we don't do that, then we will eventually be overrun and turned into something overrun and, and turned into, into a race, crooked and perverted, mixed with other races. So that's the prophetic look at, at this passage. But in reality, the gospel, in, in the historical reality of Paul's time, the gospel was meant to separate the wheat and the tares <clears throat> not everybody in greek was a was a greek at this time not everybody in rome was a roman if you kept the gospel of christ and the commandments of christ then you would be separated ideologically from the tares even if they were jews or even if they were perhaps Descendants of ancient Canaanites who had been taken or or made their way into Europe. So they're really related to the Jews, even though they're not practicing Judaism. They're Tares. They're the same people. Today we would call them Arabs, perhaps, or or Lebanese, or, or Jordanians, or something like that. Syrians are, are mostly mixed with Canaanites now, so so. But they were originally white. Well, well, the gospel was designed to separate the sheep, to separate the wheat and the tares. If you reject the gospel, <clears throat> I'm sorry. If you reject the gospel, and and you keep yourself engaged in the ways of the world and in the paganism of the world well you're eventually going to end up race mixing because you have no moral restriction yet you have no moral restriction against fornication against adultery things which christians understand are evil and which we should not participate in so you would end up eventually race-mixed with these enemies of Christ as the natural result of your apostasy. But if you keep the law, you'll be preserved, and you won't commit fornication, and you won't be engaged in those worldly sins in order to be destroyed. That's the only way to keep yourself pure, is to keep the law of God. I don't know if I explained that sufficiently. But there were many tares in the world, even in Rome and Greece at that time also, as well as in Palestine. The Edomites weren't um, contained to Palestine alone. They were also all over the, all over the Roman world. There were um, plenty of Jews in Rome. Look, look at um, Herod Archelaus was banished to Gaul. And he would have taken his family with him. In 10 AD, when the Romans deposed him from being king over his father's kingdom, they removed him. They banished him to Gaul. So that took an Edomite family and planted it in Gaul. I I mean, they were all over the place then too. They weren't contained in a bottle in Palestine, these Edomite Jews.
1: And um, that's also the root of all the persecutions that, you know, you've mentioned many times.
0: Right. That's the root of all the persecutions. But look at how the Jews operate today when we accept them and, and they corrupt our societies. They create races crooked and perverted because as soon as the Jews are accepted, in a host nation, they start advocating for um, diversity and, and multiracialism and, and the rights of the, the um, universal rights of man and, and all these things that they do today, they've done it in different terms all throughout time. So they did the same thing in the ancient world, just using different terms, agitating against the host society, so that they could corrupt it and pervert it so paul 's words that they 're quite profound once you understand the racial connotations of his of his language, which are clear so in this context that 's the only passage which we have to discuss from Philippians. And now we should turn to the epistle to the Colossians. And I will go right to Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That phrase, every creature, phrases like that. Do you really think that Paul preached first to to frogs and goats and, and literal goats, right? And horses and things like that. Well, of course he didn't. So... The denominational Christian might say, well, then, if that can't be true, Paul didn't preach the gospel to frogs and goats. He he must have preached it to every man under heaven. But is that true? And and of course it's not true because there's no epistle of Paul to the Eskimos, there's no epistle of Paul to the Zulus or or the Hottentots or even to the Egyptians or the Arabs. He never had any interest in taking the gospel to people of any other race. So Paul must have failed, or he must have lied, or these words, every creature, don't mean what denominational Christians think they mean. The phrase every creature in Greek is en pase ketisai. And I must translate it among all the creation, or among all creation, and which alternatively may be read among the whole creation. That's because those words, passe and katisai, the words pas, that their forms of the words pas and katesis, they are both in the dative singular case and not in the plural case, where pas in the singular is one of one only, it means all or the whole, all in that sense, as all of a single thing. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul makes it clear that he had considered the Adamic race of man, which is a single family of one specific kind to be one creation as opposed to other aspects of God's creation. So there Paul wrote in Romans eight thirty eight, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor messengers or angels, right? Nor magistrates or judges, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of Yahweh, which is in Christ Yahshua, our prince. I think the King James Version has there any other creature rather than any other creation. But it's the same word, katesis. So all these things which Paul mentioned, he saw as different Creations or creatures, although they are also part of creation as a whole. Therefore, the whole creation or all the creation mentioned here is not necessarily all of the overall creation, but rather it is merely all of the Adamic creation, the Adamic race. Paul clearly referenced the Adamic race as a single unit or kind, of creation in that passage. If different races, or as the King James Version has, every creature were meant, then the words would have appeared in the dative plural, and so it would be among all creatures. But that is certainly not the case.
1: And this is where um, Judeo-Christians imagine we need to convert everybody, right? With verses like this.
0: Absolutely. And it's simply not what Paul's saying because he's speaking about a single creation. And the creation of cattle is a single creation. So the cattle are a creature. And if you refer to cattle and you use the term here in, in the singular, and passe katisai, you, you would think that Paul was speaking about all cattle because that's the context. So you would translate it among all the creatures in, in the context of cattle. You can't imagine that it's speaking of frogs. So it would be among the whole creation in reference to cattle. Well, here it's speaking about men, and it's speaking about the Adamic man. So being in in the singular rather than the plural, it means all of the race of Adam in that context, or all of the race of Israel, because Israel is also referred to as a single creation by God, in the prophet Isaiah, in several places in Isaiah, and in the wisdom of Solomon. In Tobit chapter eight, in verses five and six, and in verse 15 in the Septuagint, there is an example of these Greek words appearing in the plural and interpreted to mean all creatures. So from the King James version of Tobit, chapter 8, verse 5, we read, Then began Tobias, he's called Tobias in in the King James, rather than Tobit. Then began Tobias to say, 'Blessed Blessed art thou, I'm sorry, God of our fathers. And blessed is thy holy and glorious name forever. Let the heavens bless thee, and all thy creatures. And the phrase, all thy creatures, is from the same Greek words with a pronoun added, right? Passé, ahi, ketisais, sou. That's the pronoun, su. But it's the same phrase that we see here in the singular. There it's in the plural. So there it means, all thy creatures, referring to everything that God did create, to the overall creation every different kind or type of thing that he created because it's in the plural. But here in this passage, it's in the singular. It's not in the plural. And the same phrase is translated the same way in the King James Apocrypha in verse 15 of that chapter. And in both verses, all three words, passe, ahi, and katesis, Or that wouldn't be ahi, that would be hai. And kitesis are all creatures, all creatures. All three words of the phrase are plural. The gospel of Christ is not for all creatures, but rather it is only meant for a specific creation, the Adamic creation, which survived in the children of Israel. As Abraham was promised that his seed would inherit the nations, and they did. For example, there were no recognizable Thracians in Philippi at the time of Christ. There may have been some people who were, in whole or part, descended from Thracians, but there were no recognizable Thracians. But there were many Dorian Greeks and Romans who descended from the ancient Israelites this is the whole context of the scripture. And if these words, pas and "kathesis" are singular, then they only refer to one creation or one species or specimen of all the things which God created. But if they're plural, then they refer to all the things which God created. There's a difference there that the King James Version obscures. It obfuscates. It does not obfuscate. It does not recognize that difference. So likewise, in Wisdom chapter 5, verse 17, we read where God is the subject, he shall take to him his jealousy for complete honor and make the creature the same word, kathesis, and make the creature, but there it's in the singular, his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. So there we see the creature, which is the same singular word, kathesis, meaning creation, is opposed to the enemies of God and therefore refers to only a single creation or species excluding and distinct from the enemies themselves. Then another example is found in Wisdom chapter 19 verse 6 where we see the concept of a creation narrowed to include only the children of Israel. For the whole creature It's the same words that we see here in this passage in in Colossians. For the whole creature in his proper kind was fashioned again anew. This is describing the reestablishment of the Adamic race because most of the nations had gone off into paganism. The reestablishment of the Adamic race in the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And they were promised to inherit all the nations, all the other Adamic nations. For the whole creature in his proper kind was fashioned again anew. And there's a problem with the translation there that's a separate subject serving the peculiar commandments that were given to them that thy children might be kept without hurt now to whom was given the commandments the children of israel so who is meant where it says the whole creature only the children of israel period so they are a distinct creation in wisdom chapter 19 verse 6 these are the literary models which paul of tarsus had so where he says every where he's made he's made to say every creature here in colossians he's not referring to everything that god ever created he didn't preach the gospel to to trees and and stones he preached the gospel to the white nations of europe and they are the whole creation in the sense of one aspect or species or, or type which God created, as opposed to all the other types, where the plural would have to be used, as it was in Tobit.
1: So it shows that Paul quotes Solomon a lot and obviously based a lot of um, the way he wrote his letters on Solomon's teachings, and right?
0: Well, right. Paul did, Paul did use examples and, and allegories and lessons from the wisdom of Solomon in his epistles. That's very clear, and as I've been illustrating in my ongoing commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, which still has several presentations left. Speaking of the children of Israel... We recently discussed the word anointed from the Greek word Christos, which is always translated as Christ in the King James Version, even on a few occasions where it cannot possibly refer to Christ, but must instead be referring to the collective children of Israel. Now, discussing this phenomenon in Ephesians chapter 3 in our last presentation. I had mentioned it in reference to verse 4, but omitted discussing it again in verse 17, so I'm going to do that now. I had, when we first discussed this word Christos, and how meaning anointed, it often referred to the children of Israel collectively, rather than to Christ himself, I had stated that I would continue to elucidate that as we discuss the rest of Paul's epistles. So this is a part of that promise to make that continuation. I don't know if you have anything else to say.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. That they always get rid of the anointed Israelites and make everything about Christ almost like Christ came for himself, right? Which is just silly.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's basically how they do it. And and then they they sort of that they sort of bully you into believing that everything in the Bible, everything in the Gospel, is only about Christ, and all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved, as if God wrote the Bible on account of Himself for Himself by himself, and about himself. That's absolutely true. But in fact, most of the Bible is about the family which descended from Abraham that inherited all the promises and the covenants of God, and that family was called Israel. And most of the Bible is for and by and about them and how they sinned. They had all of these advantages. They had all of these privileges from God. If only they would be obedient, but they sinned. And for that reason, they were scattered. But God promised on account of the promises to Abraham that they would be regathered and reconciled to him at some future time and that future time was in the ministry and gospel of Christ so from that time all they have all they have to do is turn to Christ to be reconciled to God but that doesn't mean that it's for anybody else That's the story the Bible's really telling. But the denominational churches and the mainstream translators ignore that story entirely and make it all about Jesus and Jesus only. And they kind of bully you into believing that because if you deny any aspect of what they say, then they will claim that you are denying Christ, which is certainly not true. So, so they lock you into this false dichotomy and they use guilt to keep you there. They lock you into this false interpretation of Scripture and they use guilt to keep you there. Paul called it the systematization of deception. That's what it is. It's the systematizing of deception. So in Ephesians chapter 3, from verses 14 to 17, Paul wrote, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom the whole family, the whole family, now that's singular, in the heavens and upon earth is named. What is that whole family? Is it every believer? Then how and why did Paul use a term that can mean family? As if they're constructing some kind of artificial family from many different races. And that's not what Paul is saying. That word family is patria, it means a lineage, it doesn't mean a congregation or or an assembly of diverse believers from different lineages the whole family already exists before they had the gospel. As Paul is attesting here that they exist from whom the whole family in the heavens and upon earth is named. In order that he would give to you in accordance with the riches of his honor, the ability to be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man to administer the anointed Not to administer Christ, and and of course the King James Version has that word administer as to establish or to dwell, I believe. To administer the anointed through the faith in your hearts, being planted and founded in love. Now, there the King James Translators wrote in verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But that defies the grammar of the clause. The word Christos is in the accusative case, and therefore it is the object of the verb. Not the subject, as the King James Version has it. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts makes the word Christos the subject of the verb. But in the grammar, the word Christos, being in the accusative case, has to be the object of the verb. So that's how it has to be translated. The verb is katoikeo, which is to settle in or colonize or generally to inhabit, but it also means to administer or to govern. Similar to this statement to the Ephesians is Paul's message to the Colossians in chapter 1, where he wrote, Now, I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf, and I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed, and that, again, Christos is referring to the collective body of the children of Israel, and I will explain why. And I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly, of which I had become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you. So, in that passage in Ephesians chapter 3, which we just discussed, It's basically explained in this similar passage in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul used very similar language to explain the same task which he had, which was the administration of the household. That's the word oikonomia, the household of Yahweh. So in verse 17 of Ephesians 3 He's not talking about Christ dwelling in your hearts. He's talking about administering the anointed through the faith in your hearts. The King James actually twisted the grammar of Ephesians 3.17 in order to make it all about Christ and not about the household and family of the children of Israel. So, continuing to read from Colossians chapter 1, from I'll start again with verse 25, speaking of the assembly, of which I have become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh. Now, if we go back to the prophet Isaiah, which said that the children of Israel would be blind and, and that they would be scattered. And that they would be prisoners in prison houses, that they would sit in darkness, and all this other language that we see of the children of Israel in Isaiah. But then there's the promises in Isaiah that they would be recollected and regathered to God and would return to God in, in a savior and a redeemer. And that it would be gathered from the four corners of the earth and all of that other language that is what paul is about to explain is a mystery it's related to the administration of the household of yahweh to fulfill the word of yahweh they're the words in isaiah that paul is and in hosea and in micah that paul is speaking of the fulfillment of so he says, "The mystery which has been concealed from the ages and from the races that word Ginea, but now has been made visible to his saints." There's that word saint again. Who were the saints? The saints of the ancient, sanctified, set apart children of Israel. To whom Yahweh, <clears throat> to whom Yahweh did, did wish to make known what the riches of the honor of this mystery are among the nations, which is the expectation of honor anointed in you, the King James Version has Christ in you, whom we declare, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom in order that we may present every man perfect among the anointed, not necessarily in Christ or to Christ, for which I also labor, striving in accordance, I'm sorry, I have gas, I don't know why, striving in accordance with that same energy which is operating within me with power. Here in verse 24, Paul certainly was not suggesting, if we read verse 24 in the King James Version, and, and let me sort of dig that up i'm sorry i just realized i should probably read that in in colossians 124 the king james version has paul saying who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of christ in my flesh for his body's sake which is the church behind in the afflictions of christ is paul saying that Christ did not suffer enough, that Paul had to suffer more to make the suffering of Christ better or more complete. That's what the King James Version has him saying. But he's not saying that. He's speaking about he is suffering on behalf of because he's bringing the gospel to them. On behalf of the anointed, which are the collective children of Israel. <clears throat> He's not saying that Jesus didn't suffer enough and he had to suffer more on, account, on, on behalf of Jesus. That's ridiculous. That's actually a blasphemy. If Christ died for our sins, how could we imagine that he did not suffer enough and we have to suffer more for him? How could we imagine that we have to do anything that benefits God or that completes the task or mission or purpose of God? That he can't do it without us. But that's what the King James translation would lead one to believe. That God couldn't do it all by himself. He had to get Paul to suffer more to perfect God's suffering. That's crazy. That's blasphemy as far as I'm concerned. Paul's speaking about the collected body of the children of Israel. The afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly. Of which I become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh. That's that word oikonomia, which has been given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh so paul was certainly not suggesting that christ hadn't suffered enough he's telling the assembly that he suffers on behalf of the anointed the children of israel and further on in colossians chapter 2 verse 11 paul mentions the circumcision of the anointed which is that circumcision of the hearts of the children of israel mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 4, Paul mentioned it in Romans chapter 2 in verse 29, and and it's mentioned elsewhere. The King James Version translations of these passages constantly make Christ the object of Paul's ministry rather than the subject As the lost sheep of the ancient Israelites are his objects. Throughout the books of the prophets, Yahweh God had promised through Christ that he would gather his people, and the King James and all other translations obscure the fulfillment of that promise in the New Testament. So once you translate these passages from our perspective, your whole view of the Bible is altered and it's brought in line with the prophets of God in the Old Testament, where we could see that the New Testament or the New Covenant is is fulfilled in Christ precisely as it was explained in the prophets that it would be fulfilled. But when you compare the church teachings and the church translations to the words of the prophets, you have serious discrepancies. And the two testaments, the two covenants of God are in conflict with one another when they when there is no conflict. I don't know if you might have anything to say.
1: Well, yeah what you said is if the church is the body of christ well then there's multiple bodies of christ all competing with each other right right
0: yeah right i i I would imagine um the lutherans are one body of christ and the, the roman catholics are another and the greek orthodox are another and and there's a couple of hundred bodies of christ right that's ridiculous and and there's bunches of heads, right? There's a pope that's a head, and there's various Orthodox bishops that are heads, and Christ can't be the head.
1: Yeah, and that's where you you know, um, atheists can mock mock us and say, "Was there a Catholic head of heaven and a Protestant heaven, and all that?" Because even they look at it and just think this doesn't make any sense, right?
0: Right, absolutely, I agree. But the body is the people, no matter what denomination they are. And and all the denominations are, are deceivers. They're, they're all deceptions. Every denomination is a deception. As Paul said, there must be sects among you. And in that manner, the anointed would be manifest among you. Right? I mean, that word heresies, that's in... um. First Corinthians chapter eleven verse nineteen, for there must be also sects or heresies among you that they which are approved may be manifest among you, so a lot of people go off into perdition with those heresies. This brings us to Colossians chapter three verses twenty three and twenty four <clears throat> And we'll read from the King James Version, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. This inheritance, it is um, a subject of the Old Testament very often, and It was promised the inheritance of the promises made to Abraham were passed down to Jacob, Israel. And it was said very often in different ways in the Old Testament that that promise would be with the children of Israel forever, that it would never leave them under any circumstances, which is why Christ had to come and die in order to be reconciled with them. The phrase, you shall receive the reward. I hate having to pronounce this sometimes. apo lampsesta tain and apodosin The word rendered receive, apolampesta, is a form of apolambano. But if Paul meant to say receive, he didn't have to say apolambano. The word lambano by itself would be sufficient, with no prefix being necessary, because lambano means to take or receive. The word apolambano is more than that. It means to receive something back or in return, which is also to recover. Furthermore, the word antapodosis, now that's a compound word made of three different terms, anti apo and dosis, which is a giving. Antapodosis is not merely a reward. Rather, the word refers to something given back, or a giving back in turn. So it is evident that these two words actually work together in context, and they must mean to describe a return of something being given back. So we would assert that the King James translation is dishonest because it doesn't fully represent the meaning of those two terms. With these explicit words coupled together in this manner, the phrase can only mean that you shall recover the return, referring to the inheritance. Paul knew that he was speaking to descendants of the dispersions of ancient Israel. Those who had lost their inheritance in the first place as it was described in the histories and in the prophets. So we translate verse 24 of Colossians chapter 3 to read, knowing that from the prince, or from the Lord, you shall recover the return of the inheritance, the anointed prince you serve. And that is also reflective of a whole different worldview, that the Christian identity worldview agrees with the grammar and vocabulary which Paul had used throughout his epistles. The King James Version waters all that down and omits significant portions of the meanings, significant aspects of the meanings of these words. It just glosses over them and and omits them. And you can't ignore them.
1: Yeah, and all those uh, prophecies given to uh, Jacob's uh, 12 sons, you, you know, and, and Jacob in general, they all just fizzle out and, and disappear, right?
0: Right. With the King James translation, all those prophecies mean nothing and they're never fulfilled. With our interpretation, everything becomes absolutely manifestly clear that this is a fulfillment of all those prophecies that that's what's paul paul is describing but in order to yes yeah, christ that, didn't
1: um bamboozle abraham right or right or have him over he, he will fulfill the promises
0: absolutely and and even in the opening and i pointed this out before even in those opening um professions in which are recorded concerning Christ in the gospel of Luke, one by Mary and one by the father of John the Baptist. So we have two witnesses there. They both state that this is being done, that this is going to be done so that Yahweh God could keep the promises which he made to Abraham. where the King James Version takes those promises to Abraham and basically nullifies them. But when you actually examine Paul's language, an antapodosis is not merely a reward. It's something given back in turn. Now, there's no promise in the Old Testament that anybody of any race was going to be rewarded simply for believing Jesus. Where's that promise? There are many promises in the Old Testament, in the prophets, that the children of Israel would be reconciled to their God if they returned to him. And that's what Paul's speaking of. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul wrote, according to the King James Version, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. Now elsewhere, Paul stated that his mission was to deliver a Message for Compliance of Faith by All of the Nations. That's in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Then, later in that same chapter, in verses 25 and 26, he wrote that the proclamation of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with a revelation of mystery, having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings in accordance with the command of the eternal God, or the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all the nations, the anointed prince you serve, by submitting to the faith and keeping his commandments. In Acts chapter 8, now let's see what Paul was in bonds for as he said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, for which I am also in bonds. What was he in bonds for? In Acts chapter 28, Luke recorded Paul as having said, For this cause, therefore, have I called you for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Christ is the hope of Israel, but it is the identity of the children of Israel which would be revealed in the gospel of Christ. Christ was never a mystery. Everything about Christ was explained in the gospel, but the identity of the lost sheep of Israel was a mystery, and it is that mystery which Paul was declaring so we would translate this verse from Colossians chapter four to read at the same time, praying also for us in order that Yahweh would create an opportunity for the word, for us to speak the mystery of the anointed, of the people collectively, for which I also have been bound.
1: But the and fact is uh, it's still a mystery today, isn't it? For, for most of our people who, who the anointed people are,
0: right? Because the churches have obscured all of the places where Paul identifies them. They've obscured the meanings. And, and even where the meanings are plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they explain it away rather than explaining it historically. They can't go there. If they go there and explain that historically, then it opens up a can of worms. Because if the Greeks are Israelites, then who are the Jews? So the fact that the anointed are a particular people is further revealed two verses later in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul wrote, as it is in the King James Version, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. And here we must ask... Toward them that are without what? What are they without? Who are them that are without? And this archaic English rendering is quite obscure today. So it may be easily misconstrued to mean something that the Greek cannot possibly mean. That word rendered without is the adverb exo, and it means outside, referring to someone who is not inside or within. The phrase hoi exogenus was used by the poet Sophocles to describe those outside of a race. And that's in his poem Antigone, or Antigone, line 660. Hoi exogenus is those outside of a race, those of another race, different than your own. This use of the word here can only be considered as a reference to those who are outside of the covenants and promises of God. This also shows that there are people outside of those covenants and promises, As compared to those who are included, which are the anointed, which were mentioned a few verses earlier, in reference to those outside or pertaining to those outside, is precisely the exclusive statement which Paul intended, and the covenants are only for the descendants of the ancient Israelites until this very day. If anybody could be within, why would Paul say, walk in wisdom toward them that are without? Redeeming the time, waiting out the time, the time when Christ returns. Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he say, go convert them that are without? Or do your best to preach the gospel to them that are without, or, or anything like that, rather than just walk in wisdom toward them that are without. In other words, you have to be aware and cognizant of them that are without. But you don't have to convert them. You can't convert them if they're not Israelites. You shouldn't. Now churches call anybody Christians, but it's not the gospel of Christ that they thought. taught. Not at all.
1: And we're now living in the result of not following these words, not being wise, knowing about these Jews, right?
0: Right. Not only the Jews, but all the other races that should still be without because Christ didn't come for them. So we're talking about Christian identity is is a shift in worldview. But at every turn, our shift in worldview is in agreement with the language of Paul. Even when it appears to conflict, where it says every creature, it's actually in agreement because Paul's speaking about the whole of one particular creation, and that's a huge difference, but we have language and examples which prove our point. So all of these small details may seem trite or insignificant, but when they are compounded together, they have a significant effect on one's view of scripture once they are all amended. But now we're going to turn to something Paul had written about Satan. And, and I, didn't, I didn't have any um, examples of these mistranslations from the first epistle to the Thessalonians. I mean, I'm sure there are probably a few minor ones here and there, but I didn't think there was anything significant enough to include here that there's plenty of um language in 1 Thessalonians that may be used in 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 proofs of the fact that the Israelites were white in other portions and in, in other aspects and contexts so, such as Paul's um extolling them for preaching the gospel throughout Macedonia and Achaia for instance and and then he said, but also in every place, your faith towards God is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Why would he say that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if the gospel had not yet reached China and India and South America and the jungles of Africa? Why would he say that? But it was already spread abroad, so that he need not speak anything. Because it was already spread throughout the Roman world, and that is the world for which it was meant. It wasn't meant for any other world. So there are things we could pick out in First Thessalonians and, and illustrate as proofs that the Israelites must have been white. But they that that's not really a mistranslation, right? so i mean that there's another passage of note, however, that I may have brought up here, and that is first Thessalonians chapter two verses fourteen and fifteen. So before I go to second Thessalonians chapter three, let's discuss this passage briefly because this is it it, it's um it's nefarious that things like this that differences like this are even found in in scripture but this isn't the difference that's a mistranslation this is actually something that went on in ancient manuscripts First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14 For you brethren became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus for you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen even as they have of the Jews or Judeans this is the King James version who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and they persecuted us, and they pleased not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, or to the nations, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. And a lot of denominational Christians would reject Christian identity on the basis that it says who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. So they will say, well, they killed their own prophets because these people must be Israelites. And they would think that they had an open and shut case against our positions, but that's not true. It's not open and shut. I don't care about your King James Version. Where it says their own prophets we find an interpolation in the text which doesn't appear until the Codex Bese was revised after the 5th century BC. It doesn't appear in any other scriptures, but it does appear in the writing of the heretic Marcion. Other than that, it doesn't appear again until like the ninth or tenth centuries AD. Now, in the fourth century Codex Sinaiticus, in the fifth century Codex Alexandrinus, in, in the fourth century Codex Bese, uh, I'm sorry, Codex Vaticanus, in the fifth century Codex Bese, in the original text of the codex because it's been demonstrated that this word for their own was added later in the original codex Bese it it doesn't appear in all of these ancient manuscripts that word represented as their own the word idius is not found so it doesn't say their own prophets in the original texts it only says that they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and it persecuted us. And they pleased not God and are contrary to all men. They killed the prophets, not their own prophets. So that, was, that word for their own was interpolated into the text and it makes the Jews appear to be the people of God and Paul to be professing that when he is not professing that. Not at
1: all. So was it that Marcion guy who likely started it?
0: Yes, I believe so. Because Marcion hated the Old Testament, and he hated the Jews, but he didn't understand the, the preachings of Paul. He despised Paul, and he cut out He rewrote the Gospel of Luke to suit himself, to drop all those Old Testament um, passages and about fulfillments of the promises, and and to drop other aspects that he didn't like of the Gospel of Luke. So, so Marcion was sort of like today's David Duke or one of these clowns that claim that the Old Testament is a Jewish book and that Christ was what was. what was something other than what he actually was, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises.
1: Yeah, yeah, like how Jacob stole the birthright right. from Esau and, and how it it represents a Jew swindling or stealing, right? Right. They, they have no understanding at all. They twist everything.
0: Well, well, when you go back into the Old Testament, you look at, examine who killed the prophets. You find Jezebel... And you find Doug the Edomite, but you don't find that the, um, the people of Judah at the temple really killing the prophets. I mean, they do when they're in their state of apostasy later, where they imprisoned Jeremiah, but they didn't kill Jeremiah. They only imprisoned Jeremiah. And there were many people in Jerusalem sticking up for Jeremiah. There were good men standing up for Jeremiah, so they couldn't really kill him. We don't find any record of Israelites, actual Israelites, killing the prophets. Even if Jezebel may have possibly been an Israelite.
1: Well, didn't she send out the Baal priests to do it?
0: Yes, And, and they were probably a mix. It's difficult to determine. Who exactly killed the prophets, or wherever the prophets were murdered, who were the exact perpetrators of the prophets? is often left undetermined, but the few times it is stated explicitly, it's not Israelites doing the killing. So that being said, now we could go on to First Corinthians chapter two. I'm sorry. Um um Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't know why I have 1 Corinthians on my mind for for some strange reason. <laughs> That's funny. Second Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no man, and I'll read from verse 3, and this is the King James Version. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come. Now That day shall not come. That entire phrase is in italics. And sometimes the King James translators were honest about words they added to the text and put them in italics. But they didn't always put their additions in italics. They made other additions where they they left in, in that weren't in italics. But the The way the I don't know that the original King James translators did this, but the way the King James Bible is published, added words are in italics. So that entire phrase is in italics. For that day shall not come, and it's it creates a lie. It creates a huge lie in relation to this passage. Except there come a falling away first. Now, that seems to be future tense, right? Except there come. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts or opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not, That, when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, and those words are also in italics, will let, until he be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And that's as much as we're going to cite from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that's verses 3 through 8. And this passage has always been used to promote the concept that an antichrist or the Antichrist, would come at some point far in the future. While in truth, the Antichrist Paul had described is the Edomite Jew, or or I should say the Satan that Paul had described, is the Edomite Jew who has been present here all along. The problem with with this translation is that there are verbs in verses 3 through 7, which in English may be interpreted as being future tense. But in the Greek of those verses, there are no verbs of the future tense, not one, in verses 3 through 7. In verse 8, there are some verbs that are in the future tense but not in verses 3 through 7. Paul was actually describing something that was already happening in the very time when he was writing. But the first verb, and I'm sorry, it's not the first verb. The first verb, except there come a falling away in verse 3. That's not future tense, but I'm going to focus here on verses six and seven. The first verb, cat echo, is to prevail in both verses six and seven in the Christigenia New Testament. And I shall read that version momentarily. However, in the King James Version, it is to withhold, in verse 6, and to let, in verse 7. The verb is defined by Liddell and Scott as to hold fast, to hold back, to withhold, to detain, to have in possession, possess, or occupy, or to hold down overpower, oppress, or afflict, and then in the intransitive, To hold, stop, cease, or to prevail, or to have the upper hand. Which goes hand in hand with the idea of possession, or to overpower, or hold down, right? So although this is a quite versatile word, I cannot account for the King James Version rendering of let at verse 7. It seems that the King James Version translators took the subject of Paul's statements here, to be Yahweh God himself, and so they confused the rendering and they distor- they distorted this verb while inserting words that are not found in the text, such as the words, will let, in order to try to make sense of the statements. But rather, the subject of Paul's statement here has not changed from verses three and four, it is that same man of lawlessness and son of destruction, the terms being used collectively. And so there is no confusion keeping Paul's statements in context. So the first five verses of Second Thessalonians chapter two tell us exactly who this is the entity seated in the temple of God <clears throat> and pretending to be as God. In verse 4, Paul tells us that he is seated using the present tense. So we must read from verse 3 in order to understand the context of verses 6 through 8 properly. And I'm going to read this from our own translation from the Christian and New Testament, and I'm going to comment on the king james version as i read each verse second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8 so the Christian new testament second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 you should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy had not come first and the man of lawlessness been revealed the son of destruction and I'll stop there. First, the King James Version adds an entire clause to this verse where it says, That day shall not come, which is in italics because it is not found in the Greek text. So right away they create a false doctrine and they add a whole sentence almost, that they shall not come. And, and that's completely dishonest. But second, that verb come is in the aorist tense. The aorist tense denotes an action which had already begun when it is mentioned. It does not describe a future action for which Paul may have used the future tense form of the verb. The Ayers tense is a little difficult to understand. Some grammarians claim that it does not describe a period of time at all. The more traditional grammarians explain that it describes an action that's already begun, but isn't necessarily completed right? So if you started doing something yesterday and you didn't necessarily complete the task, you should use a verb of the aorist tense to describe the action, because it's ongoing and not necessarily completed. But it might be completed. We have to look at the context of, of the passage in order to determine that. So... Where the King James has that man of sin be revealed. It also suggests a future action where that verb is of the aorist tense as the man of sin was revealed in the, midst, in the ministry of Christ. So now that we see these actions were already taking place, Paul continues in, in verse 4, He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. And here the King James Version renders four verbs in ambiguous tenses, opposeth, exalteth, sitteth, and showing. Three of these verbs, opposing, exalting, and showing, or as we have it, representing, are present tense participles. While the verb which we translated as is seated is an infinitive, And infinitives don't really have a tense as to past, present, or future, right? All of these verbs describe actions which were already taking place as Paul wrote, as most of them are in the present tense. So these verbs being in the present tense, then we must understand that the infinitive is also in the present tense, and that the aorist tense verbs of verse 3 certainly did denote actions which began in the past. That's the context. That's how they must be understood. They cannot denote actions which shall not begin until some point in the future. Because here in verse 4, Paul is clearly referring to actions which are going on or happening in the present tense when he's writing. We move on to verse 5. Do you not remember that, yet being with you, I had told you these things? Paul had taught these things to the Thessalonians at some point before writing this epistle. Verse 6. And you know that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time. That which now prevails. This verb is also a present tense verb, a present tense participle for him to be revealed. The verb is an aorist infinitive. The action was already initiated but is not yet complete. The gospel of Christ had not had its full impact as Paul was writing, and the aorist tense is used to describe a process or action which is not necessarily completed. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating. Again, we have the present tense, and Paul makes that explicit. He prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way the present tense participle rendered as prevailing here also seems to have been rendered in the present tense in the king james version although a phrase is added and it is translated in a manner it is translated in a manner which does not suit the definition of the word where it says he who now letteth will let, and, and that, the, the verb can't mean to let, it doesn't mean let, it's not referring to God letting this happen, or God who will let this happen in the future, With and, and those words are in italics, it's referring to the same subject, the son of perdition, the son of Perdition, I'm sorry, the adversary, the Satan that Paul is describing. It's the son of perdition who is the subject and who is prevailing and who is prevailing presently, as Paul said in in the verse which preceded, that which now prevails. The verb rendered he should be is also aorist indicating that the action has already begun until he should be out of the way. And with that, we'll go to Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. And then will the lawless be revealed, whom Prince Joshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence. Now here, only here, there are three verbs of the future tense which we translated as be revealed, will destroy and abolish. So some wicked entity sitting in the temple when Paul wrote would ultimately be exposed with the gospel of Christ, prevailing until that entity is finally destroyed by Christ at his coming. This satanic entity which Paul describes can only be the Edomite Jew who was in control of the temple at Jerusalem when Paul wrote. So Paul says in the ensuing verses, in verses 9 and 10, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not, and that's past tense even in the King James Version, they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And of course they couldn't believe Christ because they were not his sheep
1: and um you know in in the gospel even um you know ha- how this is rendered as a single uh, person even like jacob sometimes it's just said jacob and it's referring to the whole israelites as a whole right and, and you know you already mentioned how john said many antichrists are being born being born so in no way does this have to be a single evil entity you know, that's uh, opposing Christ. It, it's a whole race as a whole.
0: Well, well, right. It's absolutely a whole race as a whole. And there are, there is another passage in Paul which demonstrates that. But that word, who's coming, and that word in, in um, who's coming is after the work of, of satan that word is not a verb it even after the working of satan that word for coming is not a verb it doesn't have a tense because it's not a verb it's actually a noun it's parousia and it means presence it's present at the time when paul is writing and it's it's translated as presence. Even though I didn't translate the Second Thessalonians chapter two verses nine and ten, which I just read, I didn't translate it. I didn't include the Christianian New Trans New Testament translation for this presentation. It is whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood. So, (coughs) in verse 10, and every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing, present tense, Paul's not speaking about something that's going to happen in the future. But the King James language does its best to try to make it sound that way, to put this in the future. And that's entirely corrupt and dishonest. It's incredibly corrupt and dishonest. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, I believe it is, to answer your question, Paul's writing to the Romans, and he says, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Paul wrote that in 57 AD, or thereabouts. And in 70 AD, 13 years later, the Romans destroyed the temple and the Edomites at Jerusalem. So they didn't destroy the Edomites completely, but according to their own historian, Tacitus, they killed 500,000 Judeans. And according to the Judean historian, Josephus, they killed 1.1 1. 1 million Judeans. So that would be crushing Satan under the feet of the Romans And Christians had had the warnings of Christ that when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, know that her desolation is near. And this is found in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, all in slightly different language, where the apostles had pointed out to him the beauty of the temple, and he said that the day comes that there will not be one stone left atop another. In other words, it will all be torn down. When you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, notice, know that her desolation is near. And he issued warnings for them to flee Judea when that happened. Well, an amazing thing happened in order to permit that to happen. And that is that, and I forget his name, I really do, but I've written on this in my commentaries, especially in my commentary on Luke. There was a Roman general, and this is recorded in Flavius Josephus in in the Wars of the Judeans. There was a Roman general who put Jerusalem under siege and had it under siege for a short period of time when during the rebellion of 65 to 70 A.D., For no known reason, he lifted the siege and departed from Jerusalem, even though he was set on destroying it, for no known reason. So Christ warned his apostles, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, know that her desolation is near, and a short time later, I don't remember if it was some months or perhaps a little longer, maybe even a year or two, Titus came and destroyed the city. So the words of Christ in his warning were precisely fulfilled because if the city had remained under siege, nobody would have been able to escape. But that first Roman general lifted that siege for some unexplained reason and people were able to escape. And Flavius Josephus said that at that time, the better people of the city did escape. So we see that there must have been Christians in Jerusalem, and there were Christians in Jerusalem up to 62 AD, and certainly beyond that, because in 62 AD, the Apostle James, James the elder who had written the epistle to James, he was stoned to death by the Sadducees in 62 AD, in Jerusalem. So we know that that late in time, there were Christians in Jerusalem. And there's other ways to know that as well. So this rebellion starts in 65. Jerusalem's put under siege, and then the siege is lifted, and all the better people, the better citizens leave, as Josephus attested. They must have been among them must have been those who had, who were Christians, who had the warnings of Christ that that's when they should leave.
1: I think it was something to do with Egypt, like um, uh, um a rebellion or something. And because Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome where they got, you know, most of their wheat and it fed the Roman Empire, it was imperative that they quickly go put that down. You know, Jerusalem suddenly became irrelevant. And then... um. And, and that was also when all the emperors, was it the year of the four emperors? And then um, that the, the father of Titus declared himself emperor and sent his son Titus to finish off Jerusalem. I, I forgot the emperor's name. Is, is it Vespian?
0: Vespasian, yes.
1: The fourth That's emperor. it, yeah.
0: It was Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. That was the year of the four emperors. I think it was really more like 15 months, right? It was a little longer than a year, I think.
1: Yeah, Titus showed no mercy. He basically knocked down one wall at a time, moved in, slaughtered everyone, and then just kept moving in until nothing was left, right?
0: Well, right. He leveled Jerusalem. He destroyed it all. And, and that wailing wall that Jews love to think is a wall of a temple is actually some 6th century, 7th century Muslim structure, according to the archaeological studies that I've read in the past. And, and they seem convincing. So this brings us to our final verse this evening that we're going to present here and the final verse we're going to present from Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians and that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2 where the king james version reads <clears throat> and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith and this last clause the greek of this last clause where the King James has, for all men have not faith. The last clause of this verse is consistent in all of the ancient manuscripts which are cited by the Nestle land Novum Testamentum Grece in both the 27th and 28th editions. And therefore, it is indisputably five words, U, Gar, Pantone, He, Pistis, A word for men, italicized by the King James Version here, in the King James Version here, does not appear in the clause. But neither does the verb have. But that word is not italicized in the King James Version. But there's no verb here. There is no verb in Ugar Pantone he pistis. There's no verb. So they added this verb have, but they didn't put it in italics to indicate that it's added. So let's start with explaining these five words, one word at a time. And we'll start with the conjunction, gar. And it's the second word in the Greek here. Ugar pantone he pistis. Gar is defined by Lidell and Scott in part as being argumentative to introduce the reason for a statement, which usually precedes. And this first use of gar fits this occasion perfectly. Other uses of this word gar, this conjunction, are ep-exegetic, or strengthening, and they do not fit the grammatical purpose or the context here. The lexicon further states that in Greek, in Greek writing, gar is regularly placed after the first word of a sentence, although of course this is not the case in English. And there are other conjunctions in Greek that for some reason the Greeks always wrote them after the first word of the sentence. But in English, they denote the beginning of a sentence. And we know that the first word of the sentence is included in that sentence because for some reason, gar and de, which can mean and or but, depending on the context, or even then, that those words were always written in the second place for some strange reason. I I, I don't know if anybody could figure out why. I don't know. So, (laughs) they denote the second place, but they, they indicate to an English translator that that's the beginning of a sentence, including the word, the first word of the sentence, the preceding word, right? So... In Greek, gar is always placed second, but when it's translated into English, it's always the first word of the sentence. And here, in the King James, uh, I'm sorry, in the Christaginian New Testament, it is rendered as sense, right? Because it introduces the reason for the statement which precedes, Now, the statement which precedes is, and that, we may, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Sometimes I try to talk too fast and I'm tripping over myself. I'm sorry. That's the statement which precedes. And this phrase, Ugar Panton He Pistis, explains why. So we should keep that in mind. It introduces the reason why, this word gar. So, the next word is pantone. And I still haven't gotten to that first word, oo. Pantone is the genitive plural of the word pas, or all. So, it's of all, literally. The genitive case marks source, or possession. And surely, in this case, it does not indicate source, The particle u is an unconditional negative, as opposed to the conditional particle may. And here it negates pantone, the word which follows in English, right? It doesn't negate gar, because gar is really the first word of the sentence, even though in Greek it was traditionally always written as the second word. So, u negates pas, or pantone here which is all, or of all. The verb imi, and an upantone would be properly translated not of all, right? The verb imi, it's not found here. But the verb imi, which is to be, is unique among Greek verbs, Because, as Joseph Thayer explains on page 180 of his Greek-English lexicon, as in classical Greek, so also in the New Testament, aini is very often omitted. Estin, which means he, she, or it is, estin, most frequently of all the parts. Now, Estin is the third person present singular of I me. It is or simply is, right? And examples of the exclusion or omission of Estin in Paul's writings are near at hand. We see it in Second Thessalonians, chapter one, verse five, chapter one, verse six, chapter three, verse one, chapter three, verse sixteen. And in chapter 3, verse 18, in the King James Version, where we see the is in italics, right, that very often translating from Greek to English, we have to add that word is into the text to have it make sense. And there's a lot of examples of that in Paul's writings. So, We will supply the verb is here, but we will put it in its most natural position, following the subject of the clause. And here, the subject of the clause, the subject of every verb in Greek is in the nominative case. The nominative case denotes the subject of the verb, not the object, right? So, if I say, um, Bill throws the ball, then Bill is the subject, and in Greek, that name would be written in the nominative case, and throws is the verb, and ball is the object of the verb. The ball is what's being thrown, right? It is the subject initiates the action, the that the um, the object receives the action, typically. So Bill throws the ball. It don't matter what the word order is in Greek, but the word ball would be written in the accusative case, which denotes the object of the verb. And Bill would be written in the nominative case, and throws is the verb. So in English... It does matter what the word order is because we don't have case. So if you mix up the word order, it could be the ball throws bill. And that's ridiculous, right? But I'm sure there are plenty of other subjects, objects, and verbs where if you mixed up the order – it, it wouldn't be ridiculous and, and it would cause confusion. In Greek, you can't have that confusion because they have case, which marks what's the subject, what's the object of, of the verb. So here, the phrase, he pistis, which is the faith with the definite article, is in the nominative case so it certainly cannot be the object of any verb and in the king james translation they have it as the object of the verb have they supplied the a verb of their own and there's no verb in the text if the phrase were the object of a verb first there would have to be a verb right but there isn't and second The noun would have to be in the accusative case, tain pistin. But since he pistis is nominative, the words must be the subject of the clause. That this is a fundamental of grammar, and, and it should be readily evident in any simple Greek grammar textbook. So, with all of this, it should surely be clear that the King James Version translation of First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2 is absolutely untenable. And in fact, it is purposely dishonest. This has to be purposely dishonest. And it is like this in so many translations of this verse. Paul was not saying, for all men have not faith. And the King James Version adds two significant words, have and men, to create a lie and to twist what Paul had actually said. So our rendering of the text is since the faith is not of all or for all, since the conjunction gar. Introducing the reason for the preceding statement, the faith, because in English we are inclined to state the subject of a clause or a verb at its beginning, is, and and we would assert that that word estin is implied, as it very often is in Greek, even in Paul's writings, not the negative particle preceding that which it negates, And then of, or belonging to, or for, all being in a genitive case. Therefore, since the faith is not for all, or of all, is proper, and it's literal, and it's simple. But the King James Version did not introduce this deceptive mistranslation as it's also found in the Geneva Bible and other older Bibles. I'm sorry, I still have gas. Over the years, I've been informed by friends that Bibles found in languages such as Spanish and Polish do have a reading very close to our own. In English, not even translations such as the Berrien Literal Bible could get the translation of this simple five word clause correctly they have for not all are of the faith but the words for the faith are in the nominative case and not in the genitive case if they write of the faith then that phrase he pistis has to be in the genitive case and it's not it's in the nominative case. So they also lie. That's a, that, that is a blatant lie. And out of all of the major English translations, only the Young's Literal Translation has it right, where it reads, For the faith is not of all. And that's exactly what the Christoghenian New Testament has, except that I write, for all, rather than of all, in order to make it um, more colloquially accurate. The faith is not for all, is colloquially accurate, because it says, as Young's literal translation has it, for the faith is not of all. So to clarify that statement, we translated it as the faith is not for all. The faith is not for all, because it is only for the children of Israel. If the faith is for one race only, then that race must be the white race, as Paul had taken the faith to Europe, to white Europeans, and to no others. I don't know if you have anything to add to that.
1: Yeah, it's very similar to that verse, uh, touch not the unclean, and they make it unclean thing. When he's talking about people, not not like um, pork or, or something like that, right? Exactly.
0: Exactly. And they added that word thing. And that's dishonest. It creates a lie. Come out from among them, which is people, and touch not the unclean thing. No. Touch not the unclean. That's the them. The unclean are the them that... We are instructed to come out from among. That's common sense. That's the context. But they'd rather create a lie than to imagine that Jesus doesn't love everybody. They create lies. The faith is not for all forces one, if that was translated properly, it would force you to inspect the scriptures to find out who the faith is for. I come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How about that? How about Jacob, my chosen? I have redeemed thee. I have saved thee. How about that? Over and over again. Our Christian identity faith is in full agreement with the original meanings and and languages of Scripture but not with these King James Version lies. These denominational Christian lies. Because adding these words in, just like they added a whole phrase, a whole sentence practically, in the second Thessalonians chapter two, in order to project Paul's words off into the future, when he's using past and present tense verbs. That's a lie. They create lies, these denominational churches. Now, I'm not going to say that they lied about these things overtly or purposely, but they lied about these things because they couldn't understand what they said, so they thought that they did, and and, and they twisted it to make it fit their church doctrine rather than translating the scripture. And then building church doctrine they built church doctrine and twisted the translations of scripture to fit their doctrine their pre-existing doctrine and they created lies lie after lie after lie
1: and bill just briefly back to that um son of destruction the you know the re- revealing of the antichrist. This is talking about um essentially that the wheat and the tares right the, the the vision, the purpose of the gospel that not only would it reconcile his people, it would also reveal the enemy for once, right because before that time they had never been revealed, they were always amongst us, but we never knew you know our people you know the wider Adamic race could never truly tell, but from that point on, especially once Christianity got going and we started to follow the commandments gradually the jews would be um rooted out and and a spotlight would be shown on them and they would be revealed right
0: well well right but they could have been revealed they, they were revealed in the time of david but then the children of israel sinned and didn't exterminate them all so they that they crept in unawares, as the apostles explained it, as Jude explained it, or, or as Second Peter chapter 2 explains it. They crept in unawares. In other words, because they weren't all exterminated like they should have been, they kept infiltrating into the children of Israel and corrupting the nation, which is what they've always done all throughout history. Paul identifies the son of destruction, in Romans chapter 9, where he compares Jacob and Esau, and he describes the, the, the Esau, meaning the collective descendants of Esau, as vessels of destruction. He identifies the son of destruction, and Second Thessalonians chapter 2 should be cross-referenced to that passage in Romans chapter 9. It's that simple, and our interpretation of Scripture is entirely in 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 oh, consistent with, with the prophets and with all of history. It, it's frustrating that that the denominational churches have strayed so far from the truth, and just refuse to see this. They refuse to see these things. They refuse to translate the verses properly. That there's a huge difference between Young's literal translation, for the faith is not of all, and the King James Version, for not all men have faith, which is bullshit. That's a lie. You're perverting the the word of God. You're perverting the gospel of Christ. And that takes a lot of, what do the Jews call it? Panake, pa, pa, panake, or or I I probably can't even um chutzpah. That's the word I'm looking for. Chutzpah. And that's the only word that fits. Because the King James translators and and the even the Wycliffe translators and 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 all throughout Tyndall, they all had these Jewish influences, that these Jewish commentaries that were written by converso Jews that became catholics in in the 13th 14th 15th centuries and and were pretending to be authorities over christian religion it it was that this problem is a thousand years old it it's probably 6000 or 7000 years old that we turn to the enemies of god for an understanding of god <laughs> it's crazy and all we end up all we end up with is is Death and destruction as a result. turn to the Antichrist for an understanding of Christ. That, that's suicidal.:
1: Yeah, they only want us wiped out.
0: Of course they do. <laughs> that's why Paul said in that passage from First, Thess- First Thessalonians that I cited, that they're contrary to all men and forbidding us to speak to the nations that they might be saved. And that should be cross-referenced to to Paul's words and his address to the people of Jerusalem in, I think it's in Acts chapter 20 or maybe Acts chapter 21, that they um, they had listened to Paul's address up to the point where he attested that Christ was going to send him to far-off nations. And that was when they threw dirt in the air and, and started to yell that Paul should be executed, that he should be killed because he wanted to take the gospel. They wouldn't accept the gospel of Christ, but they tried to prevent Paul and wanted to kill Paul because Paul said he was going to take it to the nations. Right there. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 should be cross-referenced to that passage.
1: And, yeah, you'd uh, think they'd just want to get rid of him or be happy. Okay, you know, F off then. But, yeah, but right. they were fearful what would happen that if Christianity spread, then they're doomed, basically. Exactly.
0: That's in Acts chapter, let me see. i, I got to go looking for it now. This is in Acts chapter 23 that this addresses Paul's arrested and he addresses the people
1: and then they're calm up until he says that right and then they're up in arms
0: yes acts 23 years at acts 22 acts 22 acts chapter 22 I'm sorry I had it right the first time um, he's addressing the people he talks about the martyr Stephen And then in reference to his conversion on the road of Damascus, speaking of Christ, in verse 21 of Acts chapter 22, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles, in the King James Version, right? But it should be unto the nations. And then in the next verse, And they gave him audience unto this word. And then lifted up their voices, in other words, when Paul said that, for I will send thee far hence unto the nations. And they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. <laughs> and they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. And the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle because he was afraid they were going to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he said that Christ said to him, depart, for I will send thee far hands unto the nations. So you take that, you trans- yet you cross-reference it right there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, where he says that they forbid us to speak to the nations that they might be saved. And then you understand that these are the vessels of destruction of Romans chapter 9, the Edomites in Judea. And you cross-reference that to Second Corinthians chapter 2, speaking of the son, Esau was a son, of destruction. And speaking about Edomites, the Edomite Jews that are the Jews of today that rejected Christ.
1: So so hearing that it just made me wonder if that's when they began to um realize that they need a new Christianity to to counter this Christianity and and the the idea spawned then to go you know some ended up in Alexandria and and began perverting Christianity.
0: Well, absolutely that that's how I see it because apostolic Christianity was persecuted Perhaps it wasn't persecuted completely out of existence, but it was persecuted to the point where this replacement theology brand of Christianity rose up in its place, and where we see Justin Martyr, who is a Samaritan, who learned his Christianity in Judea, in his writing, he says nothing of Paul of Tarsus. He doesn't quote or cite anything from Paul of Tarsus, And he believed in replacement theology, meaning that the church was now Israel. And the body of anybody that believed was now Israel. And Justin Martyr wrote those things. But so did Origen and and Clement of Alexandria and and the other Alexandrians and, and Eusebius of Caesarea. They all believed in that replacement theology. Theology where Paul of Tarsus was teaching covenant theology and a reconciliation of the scattered Israelites to God in Christ. He was teaching an entirely different type of theology than this replacement theology bullshit that came along a hundred years later. So they couldn't stop Christianity, so they corrupted it. And, and this is all done under the providence of God, as Paul does say in, first, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, for the enemy to finally be revealed at the time of Christ's coming. And every Jew will be able to fit into the ashtray of a Volkswagen. <laughs> because that's when they're going to get the Holocaust they deserve. I got it. That's all I have to say this evening. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then we're on to uh, Hebrews next week, right?
0: Yes, sir. Hebrews and and the epistles. There are some significant things in the epistles to Titus and and to Timothy, um, which relate to race and and that the fact that the children of Israel and, and the body of believers are indeed a race. And then we should probably move on to the to the general epistles. They're called the Catholic epistles, right? Peter, James, John. That word doesn't actually appear in the Greek scriptures. That's what the church called them.
1: So they can claim it as their own?
0: Well, I, I mean that's part of the scheme. That that's they, they subverted the, the they subverted the meaning of the word Catholic also. But that didn't become subverted until at least the 4th or 5th centuries, maybe 6th. Okay, thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you.